Welcome to the Zeke Sky Podcast. two episodes, we've been discussing some ancient history, some battles, some sieges, some coming-of-age stories. And I have to remind myself that while all of this goes on, and while all the high-level battlefield jockeying and political maneuvering happens, well, what we have here is just a story of individual humans experiencing highs and lows, pride and shame, bravery and fear. And it's very hard to put it in context because this world that the events are unfolding, it's really just in some ways a totally alien planet. These civilizations had some customs in practice that, yes, we might recognize today, but so much of their day-to-day existence is so hard for us to empathize with. It becomes extremely difficult for us to understand the feelings that are happening when, say, Hannibal defeats the Romans for a third time at Cannae. What did this mean for the people of Rome? And when I think of those people in Rome, shocked to learn that they had decisively lost a third battle to a 32-year-old general with the stated intent of vengeance on Rome, I can't help but think of September 11, 2001, when two planes crashed into the World Trade Centers in New York City. I'm old enough to remember this, and remember it I do distinctly. I sat in the cafeteria at my school. I can actually remember grasping the plastic lunchbox that my mother had packed some food into that day. I remember that cafeteria, the clean plastic rectangles and circles that shaped the picnic-style tables, the bustle of an early morning on my second day of middle school, where moments before had been the playful squawk of young voices, boys chasing girls, and, you know, the clatter of all inanimate objects that so frequently accompanies those in the bustling dawn of life. Suddenly, the two front doors of the cafeteria were opened. And in walked our principal, who announced himself over a dull microphone, attempting several times to garner silence from our ilk. Finally, all was quiet. He flicked on a television that was plastered above our heads, and in front of us was a news presenter explaining that a plane had hit Tower 1. Three, two, and two, one. This is as close as we can get to the base of the World Trade Center. You can see the firemen assembled here, the police officers, FBI agents, and you can see the two towers. A huge explosion now, raining debris on all of us. He spoke. There's been an accident in New York City. We are dismissing class until tomorrow. If you are usually to be picked up by parents, we are sending you home now, by bus. Follow your teachers out of the building. Amazed and perhaps even a little little relieved at first, since this was like my second day of middle school, I realized my bag was in my locker just down the hall. I made my way down the hall with a few other students, the gloss of tile and the air of a freshly manicured building upon us. And as I approached my locker, I saw a teacher crying in the hallway. But not just crying, truly exploding with a kind of sadness I wasn't sure if I'd seen before. I stood there for a moment, totally fascinated. The third wall had been broken. Here was an adult crying. They're mortals too, I guess, was probably my first thought. I presumed immediately that this woman had perhaps just lost a loved one in what everyone was describing as an accident. But as time has gone on, I've realized that it's entirely possible this woman was crying for a myriad of reasons. You didn't have to know someone who perished that day to feel a sense of just how much things had changed. 
and to guess that an inordinate amount of human suffering had been inflicted. And this is the best way I have to convey how the Roman people must have felt when for a third time, a young genius general had defeated a consular army dispatched specifically to deal with him. He's displayed a level of tactical vigor that was unlike most of what Rome had seen before and showed strategic brilliance on the grand scale. Rome was facing a true warrior's warrior, and it was his fight to win. And the question on many people's minds must have been, was the end near for Rome? Polybius tells the story of the aftermath of the Battle of Cannae. Quote, This was the course and the outcome of the Battle of Cannae. It was a battle in which both winners and losers displayed great courage. Of the 6,000 Roman cavalry, only 70 escaped with Varro to Venusia, and about 300 of the Allied cavalry sought refuge here and there. Of the infantry, 10,000 were captured fighting, and about 3,000 escaped. All the rest, about 70,000 men, died bravely. The losses on Hannibal's side were 4,000 cavalry and 1,500 Iberians. End quote. Folks, that is a wipeout. The Battle of Cannae sent a shock through the leadership at Rome, and it's no surprise that at just this moment, Hannibal is of course feeling pressure to march on Rome, which is about 250 miles away from where the mop-up of this battle is now happening. And there's a famous line, could be true, could be a screenwriting touch by the historians, but as Cannae is being cleaned up and the prisoners are being dragged away, one of Hannibal's commanders, a cavalry commander called Hasdrubal, tells Hannibal, you know, we should march on Rome now. And Hannibal says, no, I don't want to do it. And the quote from Hasdrubal back to Hannibal is something like, you know how to win a victory, Hannibal, but not how to use one. And while the case can absolutely be made here that this trope of Hannibal's life is true, there was sound reasoning for not marching on Rome at just this moment, even though we talked previously about the fact that it probably could have been done. He's just had this grueling battle and the city is 250 miles away right now. He would have risked a totally exhausted army arriving at the gates, and that's probably not a winning formula, despite the fact that taking the actual city wouldn't have been beyond the pale. This is still one of the largest ifs in history. What if Hannibal had marched on Rome here? And I don't think this point really hits home until you consider when this is unfolding. It's around 216 BC, and it's about 175 years before guys like Julius Caesar and Rome come along, when the golden era of Roman policy and philosophy comes around, about, you know, 216 years before Christ, and really at just the beginning of the Roman hegemony of greater Europe. How different could history have been had Hannibal taken Rome? Perhaps it's the reactions of the Romans to this defeat that telegraphs why so much of history went their way and not his. Probably history would be somewhat different. I'm not trying to, to completely mitigate that, but perhaps not in the ways that we think. Let's remember that Hannibal's plan was to restore the status quo antebellum, right? That's the way things were. This really maybe underscores the reasoning here. Yes, perhaps taking Rome could have been a valuable piece of the puzzle, but burning Rome to the ground was never the goal. Hannibal wanted to restore the musculature of Carthage in the Mediterranean and win back some of the prestige that was lost in the First Punic War. All in all, the decision not to march on Rome here makes some sense, and it is unclear what the effects of the march would have been. Could it have crippled the Romans' ability to resist Hannibal and drawn more ambivalent tribes to his side? It probably could have. 
Could it also have been a totally unworthy exertion that wouldn't have yielded the battlefield goals that he really would have wanted and force him to exert himself even more on a city that he couldn't necessarily hold easily? Yes, it could have also done that. But I think it's clear that the net benefit from taking a place like Rome wouldn't be equal to the benefit that continuously winning field battle after field battle could yield for Hannibal, and that seems like what he has in mind here. The nature of the situation, though, couldn't be hidden from the population of Rome. As the news reached the city, the name Hannibal now struck fear into the citizens, who wondered who this instrument of their terror and uncertainty was. There's a famous phrase from this line, Hannibal ad portas, Hannibal at the gates. And thinking about this invokes a certain doomed romance around the nature of apocalypse, and it may have just been an utterance to justify actions or a reckoning with the tides of fate. According to Livy, most Romans had every expectation that Hannibal would now march on Rome. And there's actually really more here. It's actually starting to become clear that some kind of new era of rule is shaping up here across the Mediterranean. Here's Polybius, I'll let him tell you, from his fourth book, sort of explaining the state of this part of the world around the time of Cani. What fortune had achieved in the immediately preceding period was in effect the complete renewal of the known world. Philip V, the son of Demetrius II, had just become king of Macedon, though still a boy. Achaeus had both the authority and resources of a king in Asia Minor. A few years earlier, Antiochus III the Great had inherited the Syrian throne on the death of his brother Seleucus III, even though he was still quite young. At the same time, Ariathres IV became king of Cappadocia, and it was also the time that Ptolemy IV ascended the Egyptian throne. Soon after, Lycurgus became the king of Sparta, and the Carthaginians put Hannibal in charge of the war in Italy. End quote. So much history is happening, and we're just hearing a small fraction of it really in this story, and other fragments of it will start affecting parts of our story. And the people in this world can see history is unfolding. And in 216 BC, the Romans start really losing allies they need. A bunch of traditional allies to Rome will start showing the flag to Hannibal, including people on the coast like the Apulians and the Samnites, and you can't really blame them because they're the ones with the most to lose from a lot of these, you know, aggressions in that part of Italy. And Hannibal is looking at all these facts, and he's thinking he's got a pretty strong case for negotiations with Rome. He has thousands of hostages, a number of wealthy provinces, and a lot of momentum in the collective consciousness of Romans. So that, you know, he probably thinks now looks like a good time to get what he came for, which again is the restoration of the status quo antebellum, the way things were before the war. So soon after the mopping up of Cani is over, he sends Cartholo, a noble officer, to go to Rome with the prisoners and negotiate a deal. Cartholo takes these prisoners and a small defensive contingent north to Rome, with hopes of ending this war here and now, and he reaches Rome. And here we get a taste for the spirit of the Roman people. They respond with utter defiance. And I want everyone to really think about this. Cartholo shows up at Rome with thousands of prisoners, sons and fathers belonging to noble families and common ones, offering their lives for a treaty. And the Romans say, we're not talking to you until you get our, your army out of Italy. I mean, talk about not negotiating with terrorists. They're showing up with thousands of prisoners. You know, we get pretty worked up when there's a couple of prisoners the terrorists have taken. Think about thousands of people being dragged in front of Washington, D.C., from New York and Washington, D.C., and Los Angeles, and all of these places, thousands of them. And the government's saying, we're not talking to you. 
And they'll even pass a law that will state that you can't use your own money to negotiate for your own loved ones back. This is rough and it's tough. And uh, it's really something that sets these people apart. I think maybe there's some kind of metric by which your ability to restrain yourself in this situation really determines the health of your state in a certain sense. So what are they going to do? Well, they're going to conscript slaves, younger men, and, you know, they're also going to remove like the archaic weapons down from sacred temples to give themselves an opportunity to fight again. There's an equipment shortage. It's truly a testament to the will of the ancient Romans that any of this is possible. They'll raise taxes, they'll have the upper classes donate gold, and they'll even secure a loan from a foreign king, which is something they really don't like doing. But there's another delegation that Hannibal has, and this one's going to make its way to Hannibal's home of Carthage, where he hasn't been for a long time. He's not going to go. He's, he's going to send a group led by his brother to announce his successes. They'll bring some evidence, including some rings from some Romans, to prove the victories, and they'll ask for reinforcements so he might end the war in the most favorable terms possible. And despite what must be described as Hannibal's insane successes in mainland Italy, there's a powerful political faction in Carthage led by a guy called Hanno who is skeptical and also maybe has some interests that are on the other side. And he says something like, you know, if you're doing so well, why do you need reinforcements? And this tells actually a very important part of the story, which is that right now the Carthaginians are the aggressors. They aren't seeing their farms threatened, their livelihood eradicated. It's not a surprise that the Romans mobilized against Hannibal way faster than he could achieve the reinforcements from Rome. But this will become a growing issue. They finally agreed to send him about 4,000 Numidian cavalry and about 40 elephants, and it's actually just about the only reinforcements he'll ever see from Carthage. They'll send a few more as part of an infantry contingent that lands in Locri about a year later, but truthfully, the Garrosia, which is that government in Carthage, truly dragged their feet here. He's got some other upsides, though, Hannibal does, and they will make a difference. Philip V of Macedon, who is part of a very famous warrior family, you may have heard of one of the kings from this place called Alexander the Great, well, he decides it's time to throw in his lot with Hannibal, and Sardinia revolts against higher taxes that the Romans were levying so that they could fund the war effort, which makes Hannibal look very good. Up north, the Celts will crush a force under a guy called Postumus Albinus in a terrible ambush. They will cut into the backs of trees along a pass just long enough so that they can be pushed over, and they'll push over hundreds of these trees on a Roman army moving through up there in the north in some real barbarian treachery. And in even better news, um, of course, uh, Syracuse will abandon Rome after King Huron II dies, and his son thinks that this is a good time to join with Hannibal. But all this comes with new obligations, and it's starting to become apparent to the Romans that there is actually a winning strategy here. And it's the Fabian strategy that we talked about, where you kind of try to mostly avoid these pitch battles. In fact, Hannibal is about to spend almost a decade sort of inconsequentially bouncing around Italy. The victory at Cannae had sort of signaled to the Romans at large that the Fabian strategy, remember that's that idea where, you know, you starve Hannibal and you, not, you don't make contact with him, was correct. And the Romans, for the most part, decide it's time to follow it. And this turns out to really press Hannibal because it's clear that di diplomacy is not what he excels at. He has to exert himself a lot to maintain authority in these fickle places that are measuring the change of rule kind of cynically. And this is starting to take a toll perhaps on Hannibal himself. He's a master tactician, and Rome has now seemingly figured out a way to avoid him in the field. 
And there's two stories that come down to us about Hannibal and what he might have been going through psychologically at this point. The first is his trip to the Sibyl of Cume, an oracle. And Hannibal is said to have given great sacrifices and to inquire about his future successes. This is from a man who brought an army across the Alps and overcame incalculable odds just to get here. It's perhaps a sign of his confidence waning. And then he has a winter at a place called Salapia, where he is said to share a bed with and fall in love with a prostitute. It's one of the rare texts dealing with Hannibal and a woman besides his wife. And as a man, he's not given to womanizing. So this seems to be a sign that Hannibal's star might be beginning to fade. The Romans do not seem to know this, though. And so it starts becoming very important to them to start really going after some of the new alliances Hannibal has struck in the region, because those alliances are making it difficult for them to cleanly operate, and it's destabilizing their power projection, harming their trade routes, in addition to killing lots of their people. One of these cities uh, that defected is called Syracusa, and they'll send a consular army to Syracusa under Claudius Marcellus with a number of veterans from Cani. So for a lot of them, this is personal. He'll go there with a fleet and an army, and he'll go with a plan to blockade and wear it down. Carthage finds out and sends a guy called Himilco to go respond with a fleet and, you know, with a, a large army. I can't help but notice how big this army is, actually. Um, in my Patrick Hunt version of Hannibal, he says 25,000 infantry are sent from Carthage, along with a dozen elephants, to go deal with the situation in Syracuse, which is more infantry than Hannibal will get in his entire adventure on Roman soil. It really tells you the stakes here for Syracuse, and it really, really also tells you just how unsupportive Carthage was of Hannibal. But there's a treasure in Syracuse, uh, and that is of great value indeed. It's a guy called Archimedes, and this guy is basically a wizard. I'm going to guess some people have heard his name. Archimedes had kept the Romans at bay for about two years, inventing all kinds of terrifying devices uh, to just destroy ships and people on approach. One was a sort of fusillade of rapid-fire projectiles. Also, he maybe invented a mirror that could set fire to ships from a great distance. And the claw, which could apparently plummet into a Roman ship with a grappling hook and lift it in the air. Terrifying stuff for 2,000 years ago. But one day, while the Syracusans are having a festival and perhaps there's some drinking going on, the Romans attack a weakly fortified gate on one side of Syracusa, and they're in. They sort of go through the city, and they're, you know, pillaging the whole thing, and a Roman soldier comes into a house with, you know, a floor that's like covered in sand or something, and an old man who's kind of drawing circles in the sand, and he orders him to, you know, get out of the house. He's going to take all this stuff. Old man kind of turns around at him, who I guess he's, you know, staring down, you know, a, an armed Roman infantryman with, you know, his sword and his shield. And he says, stop disturbing my circles. And the Roman soldier doesn't like that. And he kills this guy. And it turns out that this guy is Archimedes. He's, you know, part of the reason that maybe they wanted to be there in the first place. And, uh... You know, this goes on for a little while, and, you know, we have a sad ending for this wise old polymath. It's already happened here. And it's said that the guy who has led this assault, Claudius Marcellus, is very upset about this and disturbed. But it's more than just that. It's Hannibal has now lost his best chance at resupplying his Italian campaign from Carthage because he was using that city to do that. It's been about six years since Cani at this point, and Hannibal is being forced out of a place called Capua over on his side of the world, 
When the decision is essentially made to make way for Rome as a distraction to draw the Romans away from Capua. Now, I want to be clear. This is years and years after Cani, and this is just a way of distracting the Romans from a place he's at called Capua. So he is going to march on Rome. Now, Rome was never the, you know, the goal of this march, but it's a significant moment. He starts making his way north to the city, and the lurid details of his brutality reach Rome. The Senate convenes, and there's a debate between a guy called Publius Asina and uh, our old friend Fabius. And Publius Asina says that all of the soldiers from Capua need to come to Rome and help defend, which is exactly what Hannibal wanted. But our old friend Fabius explains to the Senate that Hannibal knows he can't take the city and that this is all just a distraction. So they reach a middle ground, allowing one force to sort of shadow and harass Hannibal and the other force to go to Capua, where they need people. But Hannibal makes it to the city. The Senate opens up a nonstop session to provide counsel to the citizens. The farmers retreat from their farms outside the gates, and bodyguards are just set up everywhere. And one day, Hannibal is in plain view of the guards from the top of the walls. The legend has arrived, and the Roman people know it. He's rampaging through the backyard of Rome with a small force of Carthaginian, Numidian, and other African troops, and it must have been a ghastly sight. And one day, Hannibal and a small contingent start scoping out the walls of Rome, conducting kind of a reconnaissance, and it's here that the decision is ultimately made not to attack Rome, and his previous decision in 206 is sort of vindicated. He's certainly not equipped for this right now to take down these walls, and keeping his army supplied in this situation was probably untenable. There will be a small skirmish at the walls in which the Numidian cavalry will be confronted by some Romans, but the fighting here is inconsequential in and of itself. Then in the next two days, full contingents of the armies square off not far from here. It's a dramatic scene, and here is the great line at the helm of Rome itself, and both times a torrential downpour of hail stops the battle. And of course the speculation here is that the will of the gods was, you know, for this battle not to happen at all, you know, at this most momentous of occasions. And this move will turn out to be one that Hannibal regrets. Marching on Rome does turn out to be, you know, later turns out to be a bad idea. Instead of moving the Romans' attention to just the city itself, Fabian sort of figured it out, and he made Capua a target, basically. And while he's away, the Romans put Capua to siege and now have undone all of his progress in making an ally for Carthage. This will happen, too, right nearby to a place called Tarentum, 30,000 of the civilians of Tarentum are sold into slavery by the Romans who punished the city for defecting to Hannibal. The tides are turning against Hannibal for real now, but he's still going to do more damage. It's now around 207 or 206 BC. It's been almost a decade since Hannibal's incredible win at Cannae, and the Romans have mainly stayed out of direct conflicts with Hannibal unless their hand is forced. And the overall situation for the Romans has improved. I would still say they're losing. But they'll continuously add more legionary infantry to the field to take cities that Hannibal can't hold. And Hannibal's number of well-trained soldiery has dropped considerably as he hasn't gotten really any significant reinforcements. The Romans punished the Hannibalic defections as harshly as possible, which made it harder and harder for Hannibal to court new allies on the Italian mainland where the Romans had built up these legions. Because just look what happened to Capua. You're going to get 30,000 of your civilians sold into slavery if you decide to do this. But it's not all bad news for Carthage specifically. At just this time, there's a whole theater of this war going on in Spain that isn't completely related to Hannibal's story, but it's happening at the command of two brothers from a famous family called the Scipios in Rome. 
You may remember me mentioning a Scipio before in the story, and really it's the Scipios who play the biggest role in the Second Punic War for the Romans, producing the one man actually who is going to defeat Hannibal. And these are two of his uncles, Cornelius Scipio and Gnaeus Scipio. They split their armies up to take on a Carthaginian called Mago Barca, who is actually Hannibal's brother. He will surprise attack a force of Carthaginian allies, including some Numidians. They both will attack them. And although he has some su- surprise advantages here, the Numidians are able to repel the worst of the attack until a guy called Massinissa is able to bring in some more cavalry, and this gives enough time for Mago, remember he's the Carthaginian, and another general, Carthaginian general, called Hasdrubal Gisco, to bring large contingents of infantry to the site where a Roman army is overrun. Cornelius Scipio is left for dead on the battlefield. Then, unaware of his brother's death, Gnaeus Scipio attacks the camp of another Carthaginian contingent, but those two forces sort of turn around and attack his force while he's unable to really crowd and breach that camp. Not a good end for either Scipio. He lives just long enough to find out about his brother's death and to find out a major contingent of Celtiberians have abandoned their allegiance to Rome. He'll try to retreat up the Ebro River, but these three Carthaginian armies will pursue him. He'll make a last-ditch effort to fortify a hill down by a stream, but these armies show up and dismantle his army and Scipio himself. This lapse of judgment by the Scipio brothers will cost Rome 20,000 soldiers and probably some amount of defections to Carthaginians. The Romans respond quickly to this. They send Claudius Nero with an army of 10,000 across to Spain, and this Claudius manages to trap Hasdrubal Barca, that's Hannibal's brother, in the, foots of the foothills of the Pyrenees. Hasdrubal starts sending emissaries to this Claudius guy, sort of saying, I'll leave, we don't have to fight. But he's actually really just buying time so that he can escape with his army, and he tricks this Claudius guy, and he gets out of Spain. The Romans wake up, attempting to stalk that Carthaginian camp and see dying fires and empty tents, and, you know, Hasdrubal Barca is nowhere to be found. Now back to Rome, there's a young man watching this unfold. He's in his mid-20s. While Hannibal is about 40 now, he's studying carefully and he's learning the tough lessons that Hannibal is teaching Rome over and over again. He's got a famous name, this kid. He's got the right resume, and he's got some of the best historical press any commander has ever gotten in history, though you likely do not know his name. He's a Scipio too. He's Publius Cornelius Scipio. He will eventually become Scipio Africanus. His father, also Scipio, is said to have been rescued by this young man, the the younger Scipio, aged only about 18 when Hannibal had a small battle called Ticinus with Rome about a decade before this. So he saved his father in, in an open battle, and a couple writers confirm this. The young Scipio was given to sitting around at temples, sort of relating the stories of the gods and using divine pretense as a key to understanding the destiny of Rome. If you think of him as some sort of warrior priest, that's maybe not too far off. Many of the writers compare him to Alexander the Great, and certainly he does live up to that at times. Polybius, who is not given to the sort of high praise that most of these ancient writers will indulge in, says that Scipio instilled into men the belief his project were divinely inspired, but he says this without criticizing Scipio, which is nice. At 26, he's too young to be a commander, too young to lead, but somehow the Romans break all the rules and they send the young Scipio off to Catalonia with about 10,000 infantry in late 210. He'll meet up with some already that are there in Spain and he'll get maybe a total of 28,000 for the Spanish operation to restore some order and win back some of these losses that they've suffered. 
Now, this is personal. Scipio has watched his father and two of his uncles, just to name a few, die at the hands of this nasty Carthaginian incursion operation. And as he makes his way for a place called Cartagena, which is New Carthage, the question in the Roman people's minds is whether or not he really could even be qualified to do this. Could this young man turn the tide of a conflict that was this widespread, this complex, this brutal? A lot of people who are very doubtful. But he's not wasting any time when he gets there. He turns his focus to Cartagena, where those three Carthaginian armies are lurking. He gets to land and he marches his army 10 days straight for his target. Cartagena is extremely wealthy. It has the best harbor in Spain and at that time probably more bullion than Carthage itself had. It's a perfect target for the reputational and militaristic goals that Scipio has. He's outnumbered at least three to one in Spain though, so it also has this heroic prestige attached to it as well, which is everything that a young Roman would have aspired to at this time. Scipio leaves a small force behind at the Ebro River and makes off with 25,000 infantry toward the city, and he'll have a fleet shadowing him the whole way. They'll move quickly and stealthily with advanced scouts ordering, you know, quietly to dispatch of any enemy messengers who could signal the beginning of this march. They'll make it there in about 10 days and catch the Carthaginian city by surprise. Now it has an army charging it by land and a fleet blocking their supply and escape. They'll get there at a time when almost no defenders are at the city, though. It's, it's perfect timing. The Carthaginians probably did not know a siege of this city was possible. The initial attack on the walls in the south is beaten back, but at the north, there's a lagoon and a smaller wall protecting the entry. The water level goes down, and Scipio manages to get 500 of his troops to wade across this lagoon and get into the city. I'll let Patrick Hunt describe the city at Cart Cartagena and what's been going on here at this scene. He sort of takes the moment here to compare, and this is you know just one of many, he will compare Scipio to Hannibal here. Quote, that Scipio took Cartagena in one day confirms not only that it was inadequately defended, only a thousand Carthaginians and townspeople were pressed into defense, but also that Carthage made a grave error in thinking it was invulnerable with its walls and surrounding water, since the shallow lagoon provided only an illusion of safety. Scipio's strategy was fast coming into parity with that of Hannibal, from whom he had learned well, if unintentionally on Hannibal's part. End quote. Of course, a victory like this, with fortune deeply implicated in the outcome, is a ripe moment for explaining that the gods are on your side. Scipio will tell his soldiers that Neptune brought them aid. But the fishermen of the area knew of the retreating lagoon beforehand, and this probably presents a strategic bold stroke on the part of the young commander who has now just won a major victory and a, you know, a devastating blow to Carthaginian purse and power projection. And when you listen to that story, you can't help but notice how much of these kind of victories really do sound like Hannibalic ones. Either way, the young student of Hannibal now has a base in Cartagena, and he's not done conquering, not by a long shot. And as, you know, we all know, so much of what makes a conqueror legendary is his behavior after a victory, or a defeat for that matter. So Scipio protects the women of the city and offers lives to many of those who would have been just shipped off into slavery. He'll take hostages here, a lot of gold, and he will take a commander called Mago. So, you know, he does acknowledge that there are tactical reasons for exerting yourself and sort of showing who is the victor to these people. 
Another one of the outcomes here is that Hannibal's silver supply is now completely squeezed dry. He's still able to ambush Romans at will over in Italy, but the events in Spain will directly affect him in the long run. But now Hasdrubal Barca is sent to join his brother Hannibal in Italy. Two of the three sons of Hamilcar are now on Italian soil. Back in Spain, Scipio isn't quite ready to take a victory lap. He makes his way down to a town that was called Lippa, but it's present-day Seville. He will settle into a camp here, but he's quickly attacked by a cavalry contingent led by Mago. He will throw off this attack with his own well-commanded contingent. Both sides, Scipio and the Romans and Mago with his Carthaginians, set up for a pitched battle and let some skirmishes kind of go on in no man's land, with each general sort of feeling each other out. And Scipio starts to go into observation mode. He's doing what Hannibal did so well, which is studying the enemy and looking for weaknesses before you're desperate to find one in open combat. And he notices the Carthaginians deploy slowly and takes note of their deployment pattern, which to us may sound obvious since we've seen this in movies and books, but at this time it's new. And from this, Scipio unleashes a very manipulative plan that many armchair generals since can appreciate. He'll let several days go on of both armies sort of waking up and setting up their formations and then departing with no battle. But on those days, he'll put his Roman infantry in the center and his Iberian cavalry on the sides. And they're sort of doing, you know, they're all setting up, but then they're just not doing warfare. So everyone's kind of getting used to seeing that setup. He lets the Carthaginians watch this and they respond by putting their African infantry in the center, which is sort of a response to his way of setting up his army. And then one morning, he'll send some skirmishers all the way over to the Carthaginian side and provoke a battle. But he'll put his Iberians in the center where the Carthaginians expected the elite Roman infantry the way he's been setting it up the last seven days. Now those infantry are on the sides with cavalry and light troops behind them. It's a pincer movement. Now Scipio's line is longer and broader than the Carthaginians, which they didn't expect. They expected him to just set up the same way he'd been doing on the seven sort of shadow battle days. And he now orders the Roman infantry on the sides to turn in 90 degrees. So they're making a sort of almost a rectangle without the top part of it surrounding the Carthaginian army. It's Cani all over again, but this time it's a Roman army surrounding a Carthaginian army. The Carthaginian sides are quickly overwhelmed by the well-ordered Roman infantry, and the Carthaginian center is blocked by the Iberians. And the generals on the Carthaginian side begin to retreat. And in a stroke of luck... There's a storm that just happens to stop the battle, but the Carthaginian generals are thrown off, and this is the last time they'll fight Scipio in Spain. And as the mopping up of this battle is happening, there must have been a new question on everyone's mind. Had the tides turned? Could the young Scipio defeat Hannibal himself? Without a doubt, Scipio's efforts have paid off to dramatic effect. Rome is abuzz and drunk with rumors. Carthage has had its armies chased out of a wealthy and crucial battleground, and it was done in open combat. He'll leave with a fleet of ten ships, presumably with about as much gold and silver as they could carry. The Senate will meet Scipio outside the gates of Rome because Roman generals could not bring an army inside the walls while commanding it. And they'll give him an audience to personally kind of recount his feats and explain how this all went down. He would have spoken firmly, but not with hubris, keeping with his character, but there was no doubt that this was the greatest military achievement of a Roman in generations, maybe of all time. There's some money, like a lot of money. Livy says that it's about 14,000 pounds of silver, which in our money is maybe like $60 million. But with this type of success comes jealousy and factionalism. 
And many in the Roman Senate are eyeing Scipio to be a threat, and this is just a constant process that goes on in Rome. But his renown in this situation was justly earned, making any type of counteractivity politically difficult. He enjoys his moment in the sun here, but not for too long. They're noticing the traits of this man, too. They're noticing just the raw characteristics of a guy. His intellectual productions allowed him to plan for years ahead of time through complicated maneuvering, suggesting a great deal of drive and confidence. It's dangerous for them, but more importantly, it's dangerous to Hannibal. And now it's time for the showdown between Hannibal and Scipio. So let's look at how things stand in 205. The Celts in Italy's north that Hannibal has commanded the allegiance of are becoming fickle. Hannibal hasn't attacked the major army in some years, and that's probably part of the reason. And Rome has survived you know, Hannibal's army at its gates and a number of defeats at his hands. There was a substantial case now to take the war to Carthage's backyard, and that's just what Scipio wants to do. So Scipio starts making this case, and once you know it, the political machine at Rome resists it, even though it's obviously a good idea. It's, they don't want him to have the glory for this, it sounds like. But, you know, the genuine jealousy of Scipio, who had gone from boy to brand in a few years, probably really got people motivated to do whatever was antithetical to his ideas. Problematic for the Roman resistance to Scipio was that Scipio carried himself with dignity, prolonging his own enjoyment of his fortunes, you know, sort of putting it off and not trying to enjoy the fortune of empire, and constantly just championing the Roman cause. They're forced to allow Scipio off, and off he does go. He will launch a training camp at Sicily, diligently preparing for the African expedition. You know, even the Roman Senate has to admit he's doing a great job, begrudgingly, I'm sure. He plans a two-year campaign, which he plans and inventories perfectly. The invasion was to be carried out with 40 transport ships, arms, siege works, and months of food were packed aboard. He will meet no truly consequential naval resistance at this time when he's making his way over to Africa, where Carthage is. He'll land in Africa, and he'll immediately attack a place called Utica, but he's quickly found out by Hasdrubal Gisco and a Numidian called Syfax. He's outnumbered and immediately retreats to a wooded area. Not a good start. And he sits for a while and he thinks about things and decides the best plan here is to break the allegiance between Carthage and the Numidians. He will send spies out to gather intelligence to Carthaginian and Numidian camps. He will sort of arrange a marriage and he will do all kinds of stuff behind the scenes and he will figure out that morale is low in that camp and that there was was some amount of dissent between the Carthaginian and Numidian factions. He also notices that the camp that the Carthaginians and the Numidians are set up at is just set up with all kinds of flammable materials. He feints an attack on that city, Utica, drawing the Numidians out of their camp, and then he promptly burns the whole camp down. He'll kill thousands of the enemy and mercilessly drive their commanders away. He then returns to Utica to renew the siege, sounding very Hannibal-like. And now this situation in Africa is critical, and that's where Carthage is, like I said. So they have to request Hannibal come back to defend the homeland. And after two decades in Italy, Hannibal is on his way home. He must have been shocked. And to add insult to injury, his one remaining brother, Mago Barca, is killed in Italy, and a Roman messenger tosses his decapitated head into Hannibal's camp. He leaves Italy with bitterness, regrets, and sorrow. He's now headed for Carthage, where he hasn't been since he was quite young. Was this place even home to him? What was home? In 203, Hannibal is landing in Tunisia, 
about 100 miles from the city that Scipio is currently you know, occupying. He's got probably 20,000 remaining veterans, which is impressive considering that that's basically what he had when he came out of the Alps you know, in Rome's backyard 16 years ago. If he did curse the gods for this reversal of fate, he certainly would not have let his men know about it. He will take some time in the autumn to put some new forces together. He'll get 80 elephants, some new Midian allies, and some assorted new infantry. He'll assemble a 40,000-man army, but very few of them, maybe about a third, have substantial fighting experience. He tries to delay the battle for a while, but when he hears that Scipio has effectively courted the Numidians, and, you know, including this powerful king called Massinissa, he attempts to block them from creating a joint force. This fails, and Scipio manages to meet Massinissa with around 28,000 well-trained infantry, at least. Massinissa brings along 6,000 of those Numidians we've always talked about as being so effective, and that's a problem Hannibal knows he can't easily deal with. He's had first-hand experience with the Numidians on his side. It's a problem. And you'll love this. Hannibal sends out his customary spies to gather intelligence from the outside of the Roman camp. Scipio captures them, and instead of killing them, he gives them a full tour of his camp and sends them back to Hannibal. This would have really gotten inside Hannibal's head for sure, and Hannibal has an idea of where this is going now. So he asks Scipio for an in-person meeting, something about that tactic. Got Hannibal thinking, I should talk to this guy, who is still quite young, you know, about the age Hannibal was when he crossed the Alps. And it's no doubt that he admires this young guy, which contributes to the drama here. They'll ride with a bodyguard to an isolated field not far from Utica, and in person, they'll walk up to each other on top of the ridge. They'll make it into visual distances of each other, and will both, according to Livy, be shocked and somewhat starstruck. They don't speak each other's languages, so they needed a translator. Livy recounts the first words from Hannibal to Scipio. Quote, You stand today where I once stood at Trasimene in Cannae. Almost before you reached military age, you held supreme command. Whatever risk you took, however bold, Fortuna never let you down. You avenged your father and your uncle's death, and in so doing from your family's calamities like battle honors, you won a glorious renown for courage and filial devotion. All the glory that you have and hope for, Fortuna can turn away in a single hour. If you make peace, Publius Cornelius, yours is the world and everything that's in it. If not, then you must take whatever Fortuna may grant. There are not many examples of courage linked to success. Remember Marcus Atilius Regulus, who once stood here victorious on Carthaginian story. My ancestor sued for peace, which he refused. He rode his luck to the limits and failed to rein it in. It galloped away with him. The higher you rise, the further you fall, and his fall was truly terrible. The one that grants peace has the right to dictate the terms, not the one who seeks it. But perhaps we Carthaginians deserve to propose some penalties for ourselves. We are willing to concede that all territories for which we went to war belong to you. Sicily, Sardinia, Spain, and all the Mediterranean islands lying between Italy and Africa. Since that is how the gods have ordained it, we are content to be confined within the boundaries of Africa, and to see you, an imperial power, ruling over foreign kingdoms by land and sea. End quote. What an incredible change of fate and will that is. He's willing to give up everything that he's fought for the last 16 years? 
you must be really, really intimidated by this Scipio guy. You know, he says basically that I've been in your shoes. I see your good fortune. Don't throw it away by having a fight you might lose. And Scipio basically says, we're not accepting the terms we've accepted before. I have some other ones you can accept, though. And then he says this, quote, There is no need to lecture me on the power of Fortuna. I know very well that all our deeds are subject to a thousand strokes of luck. If you had come to me to ask for peace by your own free will before you abandoned Italy, embarked your army, and withdrew to Africa, and if I had rejected your proposals out of hand, I would be all too willing to admit that my conduct was high-handed and unfair. But now I have no such ambitions, and we are in Africa, on the eve of battle, and I have dragged you protesting and against your will to these negotiations. Therefore, if you have anything you wish to add to the peace conditions previously proposed, as compensation perhaps for the losses of our ships and their supplies which you destroyed during the armistice, and for the violence done to our ambassadors, then I will have something to take back to our authorities. But if that is too much for you, prepare for war, since peace you clearly find intolerable. End quote. Prepare for war, since peace you clearly find intolerable. There's so much to unpack here, so much emotion in these words exchanged. I find it telling here that neither men are really invoking the will of gods in describing fortune. They're talking about fortune as if it's this celestially independent quantity that behaves unpredictably. Certainly, there's a feeling on Hannibal's part that good fortune leads to the greater potency on the part of bad fortune. And there's a sense on Scipio's side that fortune or not, you're getting what you deserve here, Hannibal. He's not negotiating, and I think that given he's obviously in the stronger position and his enemy is attempting the negotiations, you know, Carthages, he has no real reason to. They'll return to their camps in visible distance of each other here, knowing that a fight is shaping up. They'll both start preparing their armies, and they have different psychological techniques for doing so. Scipio will make sure his men remember their recent string of victories, and Hannibal will point out you know, his long track record of victories stretching off you know, well beyond a decade. Patrick Hunt calls it his reputation of invincibility. That's pretty distinct. He'll also point out that now they're on their home turf, which means it's their stuff and people that will get ransacked if they lose. The battle happens about a day after the generals meet. It's mid-October in Africa, and the battle is going to take place about 85 miles from Carthage in a place called Zama. Scipio will get some ground near a spring, and Hannibal will be left to supply water from way further away, already a small victory. Hannibal has got a pretty large force here, perhaps as many as 40,000 infantry. Remember, he's in his homeland, but a lot of these are fresh recruits, and they're not going to hold their weight. He's got about 4,000 good cavalry and 80 war elephants that were not very well trained. It's a sizable force, but it's obviously unwieldy, and he can't really rely on the same level of individual prowess that he did in mainland Italy, where certainly some number of his men were veterans of multiple battles. There's a few different types of people here too. He's got Carthaginians, Libyans, Celts, and people called Ligurians. But he doesn't have nearly as many Numidian cavalry. Many joined Rome now, and that must have been a real sore spot. It's not a great situation here for Hannibal, frankly. But it was not an inevitable loss. Let's remember the seniority of Hannibal, and let's also remind ourselves that Carthage is at home with a greater overall force, and things like this do make a difference. He would have thought this through and placed his units with all of this in mind. He'll get the elephants right up front with some small skirmishers designed to sort of mix with the elephants. 
I'm not sure if they ride on the elephants or next to them, but it sounds like they make the elephants maybe more effective. Then he's got a line of 12,000 mercenaries behind them. And behind that, he's got some Libyan and Carthaginian levies, about 8,000. But a lot of these guys are untrained. They're only really valuable because they know they're fighting for home and country. Behind that, he's got his older, more experienced veterans from the Italian campaigns, maybe 15,000, which is astounding when you think of it. On the sides, he'll place both a small amount of Numidians he can muster and some Carthaginian cavalry. The placements here reflect probably the prediction that Scipio would attempt a surrounding of the Carthaginian army with the superior cavalry, but his cavalry placement reflects the idea that you can sort of draw an enveloping cavalry off the field of battle, maybe. That's maybe the weak spot he's always considered in his own surrounding of other armies. He just knows that he doesn't have quite enough cavalry to guarantee that outcome, and he would have known the elephants wouldn't have been useful for that. Scipio, on the other hand, is really addressing all of these issues on a very granular level. He's not just thinking about positioning. He will make a plan directly for addressing the elephants, for example. He will train his soldiers to organize themselves into small individual units to allow the elephants to sort of run through the lines without causing any issues. This sounds pretty difficult, even with Roman-level discipline, but I bet he practiced something like this, anticipating the encounter with the elephants. And I would imagine anything he did was overprepared, because he's facing one of the most brilliant military minds in history, and he knows it. Somewhere in the mid-morning, the war trumpets sound. Romans shout towards the enemy with much clatter, and the Carthaginian army must have responded in several languages. Hannibal's elephants and skirmishers move forward. Clouds of dust are picked up by the monstrous animals, and some of them just veer off, unwilling to face the enemy. But the ones who make it to the front lines run right through, just as Scipio planned. Some will even run back to the Carthaginian lines and cause havoc and death on their own side. Scipio was waiting for just this, and he sends forward the Numidian cavalry, and they picked apart the Roman horsemen, who were already in disarray from the elephants. This would have probably somewhat actually played into Hannibal's hands because he wanted that cavalry to chase his off the field of battle, but they'll just kind of skirmish and it won't go on long enough to achieve that. Hannibal will now order his mercenary infantry forward, but it fails to break the well-ordered ranks of the frontline soldiers on the other side. The Carthaginian mercenaries then retreat backwards, causing disarray in their own lines, and in a fit of pandemonium, the Carthaginian mercenaries begin to attack their own allies to continue fleeing the Romans. This is the problem when you take mercenaries out. Romans start moving forward quickly and the elephants are now nowhere to be found. Somehow, Hannibal manages to get his army in order and a full retreat is avoided. And now the Carthaginian veteran infantry, the ones who have followed Hannibal since he came out of the Alps 16 years before this, are finally making contact with the Romans. Both Hannibal and Scipio had managed to expose a weakness on the other side. Scipio had caused disorder in the Carthaginian army, but Hannibal now has his veteran infantry fresh against an already tired Roman infantry. The fighting of the infantry goes on. Hannibal's side begins to turn the tide, but then after routing the Carthaginian cavalry, the Roman-allied Numidian cavalry comes back and surrounds Hannibal's army. Slowly, the battlefield becomes a slaughtering ground. 
Hannibal will lose 20,000 dead and 20,000 captured. Scipio loses about 2,000 men. This will be Hannibal's last battle against his greatest foe. He will escape with a small detachment of his infantry, and he makes his way south to some old family estates. Scipio plunders and sends word of his victory to Rome. Hannibal eventually finds his way back to Carthage, after 36 years away, and explains that they have been defeated in a great battle on their home turf. They don't know it quite yet, but Zama is the beginning of the end for Carthage. Some historians will say it is one of the most crucial battles in the history of Europe, and it is hard to disagree. The negotiations in the aftermath for Carthage are demoralizing and incapacitating. Carthage is allowed to continue as a state, but would have an extremely limited scope, expressly forbidden to wage any war outside Africa and requiring Rome's permission to wage a war inside Africa. 10,000 talents of silver are required, and so was the submission of 100 aristocratic hostages. They'll release all Roman prisoners. Their entire fleet is burned. Hannibal sits and watches his countrymen's ships burned. He has no army. He's utterly alone and defeated. He'll spend some time in Carthage before the government attempts to finalize the terms of the treaty. A single protester will stand up, not wanting to accept the terms of the treaty. Hannibal will also stand up, and he will rip this guy from the speaker's podium. He's done fighting, and so is Carthage. Before he leaves, he tells the Roman Senate that the treaty should be the least of their worries. Hannibal will retreat to his family's estate for a while before holding a post as an elected leader of Carthage. About a year later, in attempting to manage the finances at Carthage, he will discover a faction of Carthaginians that are siphoning off wealth to avoid paying Rome. He makes it publicly known that paying the treaties are, you know, it's possible if they do it correctly. And this angers the oligarchy, who is essentially stealing the money at Carthage and sort of saying, there's no way we're going to pay this. Those thieves stealing money from Carthage and Rome and the oligarchy actually draft up a letter and they send it to Rome, basically telling them that Hannibal was still plotting against Rome. In Rome, Scipio, now Scipio Africanus, will see these letters and he will defend his old adversary, seemingly instinctively understanding the character Hannibal was. And I think that the take on that is probably correct. The idea that Hannibal was plotting again against Rome after all of this bloodshed and after that kind of defeat is probably incorrect. But the tides are turning on Scipio as well. Roman Senate will demand that Hannibal is shipped off to Rome to face prosecution or worse. And this is where it all becomes so obvious, how hobbled Hannibal was, how corrupt and decadent his civilization became, how villainous this kind of greed becomes. He's seemingly proven right for all his father and he ever said. It forces us to wonder just what Hannibal could have done with Carthage truly ever on his side. It also reminds us that Hannibal did not fight these wars for money or for land. He fought them for his father and for his country. So on a summer day in 195, Hannibal leaves Carthage forever. He'll ride about 100 miles to the coast. He'll take that ship right there that he finds on the coast to Circina Island where he, he will be recognized and explain that he is on, you know, an official embassy duty for Tyre, which is kind of half true. He will get all of these interceptors who are kind of interrogating him drunk, and he'll escape, and he will, in the middle of the night, get on a ship headed for Tyre. Carthage sends two ships after him. They want to get him back. They want to be able to send him to Rome. He will find some safety in Tyre, though, which is Tyre is kind of the f- ancestor of 
the Phoenician colonies that Carthage is a part of. In a few years, Scipio, the general who defeated Hannibal, is involved in a war near Turkey, and Hannibal happens to be in town when Scipio arrives. The two great generals are said to have met. Scipio asks Hannibal to reflect on who the greatest generals were. Hannibal says Alexander, then Pyrrhus of Epirus, and then names himself third. Scipio replied, where would you put yourself if I had not conquered you? And Hannibal says, first. Hannibal denied Scipio his place. It might have been in jest. I like to think that these two were friends in some way. But now he's got to flee somewhere else. The Romans know he's there. He will make his way to Bithynia, where he will advise the Bithynian king. He's been in exile for close to 25 years at a certain point, and he settles down in a villa in Labisa in his 60s. Then the king of Bithynia, pressured by the Romans, gives up Hannibal's location. He finds himself surrounded by Romans at every door of his house, and he opens up a ring that he's been carrying poison in for some time, and he takes that pill of poison. Cornelius Nepo, who was a biographer of Hannibal, who recounts this event, said that this was the death of the bravest of men. It's the year 183, and Hannibal is 64 when he dies. And I wonder about this moment. Did he reflect on his great deeds? What gave him the most satisfaction? Certainly he must have felt a sense of pride. Perhaps he remembered back to what he told his men, as a young commander, in the frosty alpine crags. He told them they were to conquer or die. But perhaps he also realized that that is not really our choice in this life. Really the best any of us can do is conquer and then die.